Uh, let's take a moment and pray together. Lord, I just feel like you're calling me to respond to some of the things you've been saying to us already in this morning's worship service. The reminder from Carol that you change our lives, that you don't leave us in comfortable places, and that just as she didn't want to experience the change that you had for her in that trip to serve the work of Jesus in another country. You are faithful to pursue. Pursue us now this morning in this worship service at the expo after. Pursue us in ways that change us, change our lives, Lord Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would abide with us. Come and stay. Come now in this time of reading the scriptures, teaching them and hearing them. Come and be with us and stay. Stay until you have finished your work. Lord, work in the hearts of every person who hears the teaching of the word this morning. People in this room, people not in this room might hear these words at a distance or later. People who come to this place with strong faith in Jesus. People who come to this place with no faith in Jesus. Those who come with faith that seems very fragile. Stay with us. Abide with us long enough that we could know the truth of who you are. Lord, stay with me. Help me to be faithful as I speak. We pray these things in your name. Amen. We are working our way over the next several weeks through the, the second half of the New Testament uh, book called Romans. We started working our way through the first half of that book last year and are uh, finishing it up now. Um, <clears throat> we call it the book of Romans because it was a, a letter written to the church in Rome in the first century by the Apostle Paul. God had communicated to Paul and others a new vision for sharing good news about the love of Jesus, not only in Rome, but beyond. Uh, primarily, this good news about Jesus had been circulating through Paul's ministry in the eastern Mediterranean, and uh, now it's time to head west with Rome as a home base for reaching even as far, ultimately, Paul hoped, as Spain. There was, um, there was something interfering with that vision, it was a church that was divided, a church where people were suspicious of each other. We'll talk more about that this morning, unpack what caused those divisions and suspicions. So for eight chapters, Paul was answering the questions that were underlying that division. 
And he arrives at this good news in chapter 8, that there is a love so strong available to anyone who puts their trust in Jesus that nothing could ever separate you from it. That's the promise of Romans 8, verse 39. Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. But what if God had made promises of his love before and broken them? That's an amazing promise. But what if we can't count on it? That's the question that Romans chapters 9 through 11 raise. What if God has promised his love to his people Israel and broken that promise? What if he promised his love to the Jewish people and he didn't keep the promise? That's the question, a question ultimately that has to do with the faithfulness of God's love. That's going to be raised for us in the part of Scripture that Sonia is about to read for us. Sonia, would you come and read? Thank you. Our scripture reading this morning is taken from Romans chapter 9, verses 1 through 8. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They were Israelites, and to them belonged the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offering be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. This is the word of the Lord. Um, one of my favorite things to do is, is Q&A. I, I always, when I was a seminary professor, they never let me do this, but I always wanted to offer a class that was just called Q&A. I just walk into the room and like, what, what are your questions? Let's talk about them. Um, <clears throat> now, that only works if, you, if I don't know is an acceptable answer, right? If I don't know is an acceptable answer, I can answer any question. <laughs> um, but I always told people that if, if you're doing Q&A, here's your strategy, is, is you spend a few times in a a few minutes in that group, like asking people what their questions are, and then you write them down maybe on a whiteboard or, or uh, put them on a screen somehow. Um, and if you, 
and then you can arrange them in your mind from easiest to hardest. And if you're lucky, time runs out <laughs> before you get to the hard ones, right? <clears throat> I shouldn't joke like that because it gives the impression that somehow it's not okay to ask hard questions. This morning, I, I want us to explore three questions uh, from this part of Romans chapter 9 in reversed order. Here's where we'll end. Can we disagree about religious truth with humility? Is it possible to have loving, humble disagreements about what is true about ultimate reality? Uh, let's explore that a bit this morning. Hopefully time won't run out before we get to that one. Uh, how should Christians view our Jewish neighbors? Let's answer that question this morning, or at least begin to. How should Christians view our Jewish neighbors? And first, is it okay to ask hard questions? Let's start there. Simple answer, yes. It is okay to ask hard questions. If the claims of Jesus on the human heart and life are true, then it impacts everything. We can't understand the impact of Jesus on everything if we don't ask hard, deep, profound questions. Questions that sometimes we can see from the... But we, we can't see the end. We can't see where the answer is going to take us. That kind of hard, deep question. It is okay to ask hard questions. Um, the sort of most profound confession about Jesus from the early church is a very simple one. Jesus is Lord. We'll see that next week in Romans chapter 10. If, if that means anything, if Jesus is the Lord, then, then he has authority over everything. And part of what it means to live in the world over which he is Lord is we want to have a deep understanding of that world. We've got to ask hard questions. What does it mean to live in light of his lordship in that world? That requires hard, deep questions. What does it mean to live in that world with him as Lord when not everyone who lives in this world agrees that he is Lord? Hard questions. Yes, of course. I'm wearing um, my University of Aberdeen tie this morning, uh, partly because I'm thinking of uh, Howard Marshall, who is my PhD supervisor there. And Howard always encouraged Christian students to dig deeper and ask harder questions than anybody else. He was a man who believed in Jesus, trusted him, uh, top-notch uh, scholar of the New Testament, its context, its history, its language, and uh, world-class scholar. And a lot of students who had confidence in Jesus came to study under him, and he said, look, I'm, I'm going to make life harder on you. <laughs> You're going to have to ask deeper questions and harder ones. We are confident that God's word will not fail. That's Romans 9, 6 
says that. It is not as though the word of God has failed. And Howard's perspective was, if we have that confidence, then we have a responsibility to ask deeper, harder questions than anybody else. So if you're studying and you want to make the claim that Jesus really lived on this planet, argue the point, don't assume it. Dig deeper. If you want to say Jesus really died, really was crucified, that's not a myth, not a Argue it. But we're Christians. Can't we just agree on No. Harder questions. Deeper. Keep diving. Um, because he understood, as Christians always have, God really exists. Not a game we play. It's not pretend. God is able to speak truth into our world in ways that are trustworthy and reliable. His word won't fail because he is able to superintend it, to, to watch over how it gets communicated into our languages, our reality. And so we can ask deep and hard questions about him and about his truth, about his word, about his son Jesus. And as we do that, sometimes it may appear to fail. It may appear that truth about God has gotten lost in kind of this fog and mist of uncertainty, of our weakness, our desire to know things that Scripture just doesn't speak to. But Howard's confidence was that if we keep digging real truth, firm and solid under our feet and sweet to our hearts will emerge. God's word won't fail. You hear in that a pattern of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And as we ask hard and deep questions, we may go through this kind of dark night as Jesus himself did as he approached his death. And yet, that emerges into the light and joy and life of resurrection glory. That's, our, that's why we think it's okay to ask hard questions. Because <laughs> we think that knowing truth is shaped like the reality of Jesus. So you can ask the hard, the uncomfortable, the challenging, the disorienting question with confidence that in the end, sweet and solid truth will come. Let me ask you a question then. My hard question for you. Whose hard questions do you need to invite this week, this month, sometime before this year is over? Do you know somebody who has hard questions about life and needs to slow down long enough to sort them through? And do you need to be the person who helps them to slow down, who gives them the freedom to pause and say, it's okay to ask a hard question? Whose hard questions about life, about faith, about truth, about Jesus, do you need to invite 
you might be thinking, no, 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 no. I'm the one with the hard questions. I don't need to be inviting other people's hard questions. I need somebody to be inviting my hard questions. Fair enough. Fair enough. Probably God is going to move someone in this room to reach out to you (laughs) to invite your hard questions. But also... One way to answer hard questions is to do it with someone else. So so maybe even if you have hard questions yourself, you need to be inviting the hard questions of other people. And to say, it's not I'm not inviting you because I know all the answers, but because we're in this together. Parents, do your kids know that it's okay to ask hard questions? If they don't know that, or you're not sure if they know that, help them to know that, that it's okay. Husbands, wives, anybody with a significant other, does each of you know that it's okay to ask really hard questions to the other? It's okay at some point to say, I know you're real clear about this thing, about life in Jesus. I'm not. Can we, can we talk about that? Um. Are you a small group leader? Are you a teacher? Are you a pastor? Does everybody under that leadership know that it's okay to ask a hard question? Here's how I know it's okay to ask hard questions. Nobody in the Roman church was asking the question Paul raised, and yet he raised it. He said, here's a question that I think is harder than any question any of you are asking. And the question is, all this talk about God's love that can't be broken, nothing in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. But what if God himself has broken the promise of his love to his own people? It's okay to ask harder questions than anybody else around you is asking. We'll move to that next hard question. How should Christians view our Jewish neighbors? Some of you might be thinking, oh, well, one reason Jesus, uh, Jimmy, all right, let me just stop and pause. Physiologically, like I can understand why the mind can, you know, like substitute one word for another. But lest there be any confusion, I don't really think it's okay for me to just use my name and the name of Jesus interchangeably. Okay, just reminder there. That's an easy question to answer. Sorry. Maybe one reason... Jimmy is asking this question is because we're in a neighborhood where we have lots of Jewish neighbors. Yes, that's one reason. Or maybe one reason he's doing this is that in town just participated in a weekend workshop about the history of anti-Semitism with many of our friends and neighbors from Congregation Sheriff Israel, a synagogue just a few miles away. Yes, we did that. And yes, that's on my mind um, as I'm doing this. But the main reason we're raising this question this morning is because it's the question that Scripture raises, right? It's, it's where Romans 9 goes. Um, 
And uh, so I want to, if you are a note taker, or even if you're not, will you, will you remember or write down six words? How should Christians view our Jewish neighbors? Six words, passionate love, profound gratitude, shared need. Uh, we've got slides we're supposed to be using, and I, I've forgotten that. I'm sorry. <laughs> but we answered that one already, right? And you knew we were doing it, so it's okay. Is it okay? To, yes. Okay to ask our question. How should Christians view our Jewish neighbors? Six words. Passionate love, profound gratitude, shared need. Before doing that, can I tell you a bit of a story about how God has been at work in my own heart and life in this area? Um, <clears throat> for about 15 years now, I have sensed a, a, a more clear calling to love my Jewish neighbors. How did that happen? Where did that come from? Uh, first, it came from a literal neighbor. Trisha and I lived down the street from a woman who moved in, bought a house near ours, delightful friend. Um, <clears throat> and she was originally from Russia, had lived in Israel for a time, and then had moved to the United States. Uh, she came from a Jewish background, but had not understood much of what that meant religiously uh, until her time in Israel and was seeking to grow um, in her Jewish faith. And uh, just a delightful person. And, and her boyfriend, whose name was appropriately Israel, um, <clears throat> great friends, and um, you know, all the clumsiness of relationship of, of like they drop by on an Easter Sunday morning one day and we've got this big feast set on the table and they're like, would you like to join us? Is it okay? To, can we ask that question? Can, you, can we ask you to join us for Easter family meal? And uh, the main dish is ham. <laughs> is that okay? It's all that awkwardness, but, but just a beautiful love. And a lot of learning. They invited us to the bat mitzvah for um, uh, uh, <laughs> Nomi. And um, we showed up and there was no one else in the synagogue. And we felt so terrible. We're like, this is such a meaningful event. And we show up. Like, can you imagine coming to a worship service at in town and you show up? And there's nobody in the room. And everybody's going, yeah, I can totally imagine that. Like, in-town time means nobody's ever there when things start. <laughs> well, synagogue time at that synagogue was even more than in-town time. We were looking around the room. There are five people in this huge room. And then we look up 30 minutes later, there are 150 people. And we look up 30 minutes later, there are 300 people. We had to learn some things about how synagogues work. And apparently, in-town time is not a hard concept for our Jewish friends and neighbors. They, they would get that completely. Um, <clears throat> so just following God's providence of having a, a Jewish neighbor move in down the street from us and then having a mentor at Covenant Seminary, a beloved friend of mine, David Calhoun, who um, he wrote a series of articles about pastors in our um, heritage, Presbyterian and otherwise, whose stories are not widely known, people who kind of labored in obscurity. And um, I noticed a common theme in a lot of those stories. 
write about pastors who were kind of my forefathers in the faith, even though I came to that faith later in life, who had deep relationships with rabbis in their cities, such that when the pastor would die, the rabbis would weep over their coffins. And I began to sense this um, calling that those are my people, people who, who have close Jewish friends and who love them deeply. I'm part of that people. I think this is part of God's calling for my life. I didn't know at the time that he would uh, eventually move me to a place where we're in one of the largest uh, Jewish neighborhoods in the United States. I'm learning to pay more careful attention to the scriptures and to what they say in response to this kind of question. Learning, learning over time slowly and feebly to express God's heart for and to a people who have always been dear to him. And so we start with passionate love. Just listen to verses two and three again. Here's the Apostle Paul saying, I'm about to raise a really hard question, one that's of deep personal significance to me. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Why, Paul? You've just been celebrating this love of God that's available (laughs) to anyone on the whole planet. And you've said that there's nothing in all of creation that will be able to separate us from that love. Why do you have great sorrow and unceasing anguish? Why aren't you full of joy? Well, he goes on. I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Paul is saying, I'm Jewish. The Jewish people are my people. I have passionate love for my people. I want them to know this love of God. It is available in Christ Jesus the Lord to anyone anywhere who will put their trust in him. Now, passionate love. Do you hear it? Great sorrow, unceasing anguish. These are not the words of somebody who's just kind of doing armchair theology. These are not the words of someone who is uh, arrogant toward his neighbors who don't share his faith. These are the words of deep personal love concern pain like this 
only emerges from passion. Passionate love. I will tell you that the more I've gotten to know Jewish friends and neighbors over time. All right, this is where if you could see my notes, you'd know something of the wrestling that goes into getting ready to preach. I wrote these words down. I thought, clearly God is calling me to talk about this. And then I put these little lines around them that are like that. No, your sermon's going to be too long if you talk about that. Clearly God is not calling you to talk about that. Or it's just not the right time. Or you won't say it clear enough. Don't try it. Don't go there. I'll go there a little bit. (laughs) Either go there or don't go there. Those are the two options I give myself, right? Maybe the Holy Spirit's going to give me a third option, go there a little bit. I do understand more clearly now the the pain of anti-Semitism that every person I have known who is... Jewish feels that pain and carries that burden. I don't know that I will ever fully understand it. I can't experience it in the way that they have and do. But I would say that many of our Jewish neighbors would assume that the answer to this question, how should Christians view our Jewish neighbors, is with suspicion, if not outright hatred. Just based on history. Just based on too many painful stories over too many centuries. And let us just say, that is not what our scriptures teach. The very first way we answer that question is to say passionate love. You don't get to great sorrow and unceasing anguish unless you start with passion. And what are you passionate for? For as many people as possible on this planet to know the love of God forever not suspicion not hatred passionate love profound gratitude I said six words here's the next two passionate love profound gratitude listen to verses four and five again They are Israelites. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, the Messiah himself descended. According to the flesh, his physical ancestry runs through the line of David. And Joseph, his adopted father, And his mother, Mary, was Jewish. And he was Jewish. And every Christian should should have a sense of profound gratitude to our Jewish neighbors. 
the scriptures would not have come to us without the people of Israel. And the Messiah would not have come to us without promises made to the people of Israel. Messiah would not have come to us without a Jewish mother. Profound gratitude. Now, we could, we could extend this principle to, to people who aren't Jewish, right? And that would be appropriate. We're, today, I want to focus on this one question this morning. But you can see how we could extend the principle. And say, for example, I came to faith in Jesus through the ministry of a charismatic Christian church that has very different views than, than I would today about certain ways of living out Scripture. We fundamentally perfectly agree on 98% of stuff and on 2% of stuff. I'd be like, no, there's a reason why I'm not a pastor in a charismatic church now. I, I don't think that's what Scripture calls me to. But I am never going to talk bad about charismatic Christians, and here's why. Without those folks, I would never have known Jesus. I could have told you a perfect story at the beginning of this sermon that would have put one of my charismatic brothers in a bad light. I'm not going to tell the story. Why? Profound gratitude. Profound gratitude. I can have profound gratitude toward people I, I, don't, I don't agree with on everything. <laughs> to say, without you, I would not have known the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Passionate love for our Jewish neighbors, profound gratitude to the Jewish people, the people of Israel. And that's not just something of the past. I don't think we, as Christians, we look and we go, well, that was profound gratitude to all the Jewish people who lived before the coming of Jesus. I don't think it works that way. I think it works this way. <laughs> Profound gratitude toward Jewish people, people of Israel. Shared need. Shared need. Every human being needs to be joined to Christ, not cut off from Christ. I am not naive. I know that our Jewish neighbors don't agree with that statement. Our Jewish neighbors don't believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. Our Jewish neighbors don't believe that Messiah has come. If, if they did, they would be messiah uns. Christians, Christians, we don't agree on that. Our Jewish neighbors disagree with us that all the promises of Scripture were always pointing to Jesus, the Messiah, and are fulfilled in him. I know this. That the message of Scripture, as I read it, 
and seek to embrace it and live it with integrity. Is that every human being is separated from the love of God and that God invites every human being to be reunited to that love. And the way to be reunited to that love is to be joined to Christ by faith in him. How is that an expression of love toward our Jewish neighbors? Hear this. Christians believe this applies to every person. I believe this applies to me. That without Jesus being who he is and doing what he does, I would be completely separated from the love of God. I don't believe something is true for my Jewish neighbor that isn't also true for me. I don't believe that I'm somehow fundamentally better than, more beloved, shared need, passionate love, profound gratitude, shared need. This is something that applies to every Christian as much as it applies to any person who's Jewish. To any person who doesn't believe in Jesus, we stand on the same ground as any other human being. And that's what leads us to our third question. Can we disagree about religious truth, spiritual truth, ultimate reality, if you prefer that vocabulary instead? Some people don't like the word religious or religion. Okay. Some people don't like the word truth. Okay. Ultimate reality. Can I make the R capital? Is that right? Can I get a capital U to go with it? Um, can we disagree about religious truth with humility? The answer is not only can we, but we have to. There was a culture war in Rome, specifically in the Roman church. Roman Christians were divided. Some of them came from a Jewish background a lot of scholarly literature calls them Jewish Christians. Some of them came from non-Jewish backgrounds. They came from other nations, other ethnic groups. And so they were called the ethnoi, the nations. And that word has been translated in many English translations as Gentiles. So they're commonly called Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians and Christians from other backgrounds in the Roman church were disagreeing without humility. They were saying, well, the 
the Gentile Christians, the non-Jewish ones, were saying. Isn't it true that um, the Jewish people kind of had their chance and blew it? So these Jewish Christians will never really be God's people the way that we are. Isn't that true? Isn't it true that we should focus our efforts on communicating the love of Jesus to people like us from non-Jewish, Gentile backgrounds? Every nation but that nation. Isn't that true? And the Jewish Christians were asking a similar question. Isn't it true that the Gentile Christians haven't done enough to show that they really belong? Isn't it true that, that they, they're just kind of latecomers to the party? Isn't it true that we should try to get more people like us into the churches and knowing the love of Jesus? It was a lot of disagreement and no humility. And so do you hear what the Holy Spirit does through the words of the Apostle Paul? He says... Can we change the tone of this conversation to talk about the love of God? Can we shift the emphasis onto the promises of God about a love that will never fail? In his word, God has promised that he will love his people unfailingly. It is not as though the word of God has failed. In his word, he promises that there is a love available from which nothing will be able to separate us. Can we shift the emphasis from arrogance to humility and love? Now, we live in a culture where many people would say any claim of truth is automatically arrogant. It isn't really. And you know that. And everyone knows that. Because even the person who says every truth claim is arrogant is claiming a truth. And they would not want to be accused of being arrogant when they do it. We all know that that isn't the case. But listen to where the emphasis lies. The love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love of God is not ours because it's rooted in the fact that we are right and other people are wrong. It's not love of God rooted in the fact that our group is pure and everyone else is impure. It's not love of God rooted in the fact that we were the lovable ones and you're just less lovable than we are and why can't you live with that? It's not the love of God rooted in the fact that one ethnos is inferior to all others. That some ethnoi, nations, groups are superior to others. The thing that is superior is the love of God. And that has to be the context For every disagreement we have with any neighbor over what is true ultimately. It's a love that weeps 
because it mirrors the love that dies. It's a love that weeps, that says, there's no good reason this gift should have been given to me. And yet it was. I got an awesome bicycle when I was about 12 years old for my grandparents. It was a BMX bike. Most of you don't know what that means anymore. Some of you are like, oh yeah, with mag wheels, yellow and blue. My cousin wanted to ride it. I ran across the yard and tackled him onto the gravel driveway and said, no, it's only for me. That's not the right way to respond to receiving a gift, is it? This is the most precious gift I've ever been given, the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. You can share it with me if you want to. I'd really like that. It's a love that weeps. All right, a little exercise for you in the coming weeks. Celebrate stories of disagreement with humility and love. Look for stories like that. Do you see it happening around you? Are you doing it? Are you seeing someone do it well? Disagreement about anything. Start small. We, we won't get right on the big scale of ultimate reality and spiritual truth if we can't even do this on the small scale of who gets to ride the bicycle. <laughs> when you see a story or you live a story of disagreeing with someone with truth and love and humility. Celebrate that. Celebrate that. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Scripture says that you are at God's right hand praying for us. That's a good thing. Because right now I don't know what to pray. And I don't know how. Amen.